other people have said along the lines of, well, you have Elvish in Tolkien and nobody bats an eye, but suddenly you start speaking Spanish and oh my gosh, it's a, it's a huge problem. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. Fanex questing across the galaxy with Valerie Valdez. <laughs> I'm Jen. I'm Paul. And today we are here with Valerie Valdez, D.B. Pitt success story and author of the debut novel, Chilling Effect, also a total Mass Effect nerd. Welcome to the show, Valerie. Well, thank you very much. It is great to be here. It's so exciting to have you. Well, I will try not to keep you for, I don't know, how many hours was it? Three, four hours that we, we heard it out? We spent so long in the bar talking about Mass Effect and Dragon Age that it was a little embarrassing, but very fun. <laughs> Exactly. I loved it. I don't get to do that very often. So next time we are in the same space, we'll have to do it again. Uh, But I think we're just going to dive right in. So hit us with it. What is the elevator pitch for Chilling Effect? So Chilling Effect, I, I have heard it called a few different things. Mass Effect meets Firefly. Mass Effect meets The Expanse. Mass Effect meets a lot of stuff, frankly, because Mass Effect definitely was <laughs> a big influence on this story. Um, but we have uh, spaceship captain Ava Innocente, who is contacted by a group called The Fridge, who have kidnapped her sister and are holding her for ransom. So Ava has to engage in a lot of really unsavory shenanigans to try to pay off this ransom and get her sister back, all while keeping it a secret from her crew growing increasingly suspicious as these missions grow more and more dangerous. That sounds about right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Plus some twists. <laughs> Plus some twists, some romance, some uh, <laughs> shenanigans. Definitely shenanigans. <laughs> and we can't forget the psychic cats. So Of know. course. Psychic cats are a must and they are a delight. They are. Absolutely. Okay, so... Going back to the idea of pitches, was that the pitch that got you your agent in DV Pit? Why don't you tell us about the experience and get, getting this book to happen? All right. If I recall correctly, the one that snagged my agent's attention was actually Mass Effect meets the long way to a small angry planet. So through a little Becky Chambers and on that one. Um, and so my process was a little weird. I had actually sent my book to Angry Robot during an open submission period. And so uh, at the point at which I was also querying, I ended up getting an offer from Angry Robot. And so went back to the different agents that had my book and was like, so, hey, 
uh, I kind of have an offer now. And, um, came down to a couple, went with the one that seemed like uh, the best fit for me, although there were definitely some great contenders. Uh, and then, you know, we, we worked with a couple of different publishers to see what we wanted to do and ended up going with Harper Voyager. And I've been uh, very happy with them so far. But that was basically my story. It was it was a weird one because typically, you know, for the querying process, it's this years long affair of deep angst and stress and rejection. And I definitely had my share of rejections while this was all going on. But uh, it ended up fast tracking a lot of things um, to have that offer from Angry Robot on the table. So I was very appreciative of that. And um, would have been very happy to be published by them, certainly. But uh, it it happened how it happened. And we'll see what happens in the future. Absolutely. Hopefully it'll be a great success. It comes out when? Did it already come out? It did. It came out last Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, so as we're recording this, we're recording this on the 26th yes. of September. So it'll have been out a couple weeks by the time that everybody listens to this, but super exciting. Yes, yes, I know. It's been it's been quite a whirlwind of a week. Yeah, I, I actually went back to Miami for the release party, which was awesome. I was surrounded by friends, did a l- little reading, had some pastelitos because that's what you do at a <laughs> Cuban party. You break out the croquetas and the pastelitos and, you know. Mm. Obviously, and also within this book, there's quite a few pastelitos. Oh, yes, yes. There's that is <laughs> It is a plot point. <laughs> I will say no more lest it be spoiled. Exactly. All right. So uh, let's get into the novel itself. So obviously, as we were just discussing, a delicious Cuban pastry. um, The novel strongly shows the influence of Ava's Cuban heritage, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which you share, obviously, uh, in many ways, but particularly in terms of language and um, well, it's really everything, but the use of Cuban phrases throughout the book. Why do you think it's important to show sort of these facets of a non-monolithic cultural future? And are there any novels or inspirations for the reader who also wants to read more about less, you know, monochromatic? Oh, gosh. Can you tell I wrote this one? (laughs) (laughs) So... I am going to confess that I have not read a ton of space opera, honestly. Um, so unfortunately, my, my examples are not great. Um, I want to say, I, I believe Amber Royer's Free Chocolate has some good stuff in it. Um, and, but I, I can't call to mind any other specific space opera sci-fi type stuff. Uh, if you want to get into, um, you know, kind of slide sideways into non-space stuff, uh, I would say anything by like Malka Older or DJ Older is going to get you right. some, some more cool language things. Malka Older, particularly, um, her Infomocracy books are really awesome in the way that yes. they integrate a lot of different cultures. It's a very worldwide, uh, experience as you're going through through this kind of near future. I I think she doesn't like to call it a dystopia, and I don't know if I'd call it that either. It's definitely not a utopia, but it's not, you know, kind of a worst case scenario um, situation. It's it's almost like it's trying to write toward write us towards a utopia, if that makes sense, where we're positing a future in which um, this different voting system emerges and how that affects countries, borders, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, I think that's a really cool one, and it is definitely very multicultural. There's a lot of uh, jumping around all over the world, and the different characters that are involved, uh, the different POV characters are uh, are very different. So that one's really cool. And then uh, DJ Elder is one of my inspirations in the sense that he was the first 
that I encountered who talked about not italicizing Spanish or even other foreign languages in a book. Um, his argument is basically that you, when you're speaking, if you're bi- bilingual, multilingual, and you're going back and forth between languages, it's not as if you suddenly change tone or change pitch or change posture um, when you are shifting between English and whatever the other languages that you're speaking. And so the notion of italicizing it is sort of exoticizing in the text. And uh, so that was one of the things that when I was using Spanish in this, I opted not to italicize it because when I'm speaking English, Spanish, with my mom, say, for example, and I'm slipping back and forth. It's it's not something where I tonally shift. My voice doesn't change. I just am still myself. <laughs> so um, that was that was important to me. And so that's something that I th- was thinking about a lot when I was writing this and just wanting to you know represent the kinds of voices that I heard around me growing up and you know, living in Miami, uh, because Spanish is a very strong part of the culture there. Certainly other languages as well. It's a very multicultural city, but that's the most prominent second language that you hear. And so it felt good to me to have a character who spoke it, went back and forth. Um, there's, you know, translator nanites for the simplicity of not having characters uh, having to shift back and forth between languages in the text. And that's something that I kind of fretted a little bit about as to whether I should do that or not. But in the end, sometimes you do have to make choices. Um, if I'm including a whole lot of Spanish in the text, then having a ton of different languages as well, especially when you have aliens on the table, um, it felt like maybe it would get really overwhelming for readers who I've heard are already overwhelmed sometimes by just the Spanish. So um, there's, I, I can't remember who it is that said when you're writing something kind of out of the mainstream, you can only change so many facets of it before it becomes really kind of an insurmountable thing for a reader. So it was, it was a choice I had to make. I'm not sure if I'd make the same one again, but it is what it is at this point. I think it was a really strong sauce. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, a, it's I, It was really cool to see that, particularly since you're not translating it. If people want to figure out what things mean, they might just have to look it up. And I love that because, well, A, it meant I, like, partially was trying to rely on my really terrible Spanish. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then also when I would go look things up, it was so fascinating to be like, oh, that's so cool. And the fact that you used a number of song titles, Cuban song titles. Uh, was really interesting. So kind of tell us about that choice. Yeah. And that's something that I even, you know, um, I am basically second generation. I was born in the United States. My mom was born in Cuba. Uh, we were raised to speak English. We mostly spoke Spanish with my grandparents. And so a lot of the Spanish that I know, I would even almost call it Miami Cuban Spanish <laughs> because it's stuff that we spoke in my house. We spoke with my friends, you know, so, um, if, if you're Cuban coming straight from Cuba, it's probably going to be a different language that you're speaking in a lot of ways. So, um, but it's something that, again, I, I just, I wanted to have it there. I wanted to put it in there. And in terms of not translating it, that, that again was a deliberate choice. I feel like, uh, other people have said along the lines of, well, you have Elvish in Tolkien and nobody bats an eye, but suddenly you start speaking Spanish and oh my gosh, it's a, it's a huge problem. But um, yeah, it's something that for the most part, you can Google it. I actually had to Google a lot of stuff just to know how it was spelled because I usually knew it orally. <laughs> this is stuff that my mom would say, especially the curses. Right. Sorry if they're on you under the bus there, mom. 
but yes, that's all you. Um, so, <laughs> um, well, some some from other friends, but a lot from my mom, honestly. Um, shh, don't tell her I told you that. So, uh, but the point is that I even had to Google some of it to know how it was spelled because it's something that I received, you know from listening to other people talk about it, not from reading it in books, because you're not going to read that stuff in books in school, especially. Um, <laughs> you're learning a very different kind of Spanish and not the swear words. <laughs> right. And and not necessarily the idioms that no. you use quite a few of over the course of the novel. It was really interesting to me to sort of explore those. Like one, I had to like, I really had to dig deep. Yeah, just just finding different things. And and I mean, growing up, especially with the songs, you know, there's there's one that um, I used for a couple of the titles towards the end, Tumba la Casa, Traime la Buya. And that one was a very particular like electronic dance song <laughs> that was played almost nonstop at parties. And, you know, <laughs> like that we, we had this skating rink called Hot Wheels that everyone would have their birthday parties at. And it was just always being played at Hot Wheels in my youth. And so, you know, just pulling from stuff like that things that I grew up with, things that I remember from my childhood. Um, and, you know, that other people who also went to Hot Wheels for birthday parties might remember. And I, I would just like to point out uh, for those non-Spanish speakers and non-Cuban Spanish speakers specifically, tell us what Oros con Mango means. Oh, arroz con mango. Okay, so arroz con mango, it's actually a dish. It's it's rice with mango, but it also is a phrase that basically means like a hot mess. <laughs> so when you when you have an arroz con mango, it's just like everything has just gone wrong. And so um usually we say se fumon arroz con mango, you know, it's just everything is just totally messed up and so um that's that's a phrase that gets trotted out a few times and it's something that again, you know, grew up hearing that. And so when you say, you know, people will be like food what I, I, what's, what, what's wrong I'm like yeah I mean, the first time I encountered it I was like she is not just saying rice with mango right now no no that is not what this means and I loved sort of you know teasing it out just by because I didn't look it up at first um, so just kind of teasing out the meaning of the phrase and it like one of the reasons that I loved that was because that's what a lot of non-native English speakers are going to be doing with idioms. Yeah. Like we have so many idioms that make no sense without context. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And my favorite, my favorite kinds of idioms are the ones where, um, the second half of the idiom has been lost and you just kind of will say the first half and everyone knows what you're oh, talking yeah. about. And that's something that even uh -huh. as I was doing this, there's, there's one in Spanish that my, my mom and I say a lot. It's like, te conozco mascarita. It's like, I know you masked person. The idea being, it's like, I know you're lying to me kind of deal, but it's actually, there's multiple ways to end that phrase. And I was kind of, you know, looking this one up the other day and being like, wow, different cultures have different ways of, of putting that one. But yeah, that's another idiom thing that happens where you only have the first half of the idiom and everyone just kind of knows how it ends. But, you know, in the future, people are going to be like, what? I don't understand what this means at all. <laughs> Worst, it seems like there's more context that we're missing. And, and that's that's one of the fun things about language and idioms and how, how things change over time, you know? Right. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk, talk about something I found very interesting in the novel. So Eva, in the course of the novel, winds up creating, losing, and regaining a found family in the, in the personage of her crew. And 
There's also her biological family. So my question is, how did you plan and think on contrasting her found family as far as the crew of La Sierra Negra and then the other ship she winds up with versus her biological family and the intersection of those two in the novel? Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, I mean, again, thinking about um, the influences that I listed previously, especially stuff like Mass Effect and um, Becky Chambers and and other uh, stories that are like this, that are found family stories. Um, I did want to explore not just the found family side of it, because I feel like that tends to come up, you know, in, in these kinds of stories. But um, family is really important um, in, in Cuban culture. And so I wanted to consider the notion of what kind of family would be so kind of grievously broken um, that someone would be reaching out to a found family when they come from a place where where blood family is so important. And so just thinking about the different characters and about how they related to each other, um, I, I pulled from people that I know and, you know, other stories that I've read and, and watched and so on. And, um, but I, I did want to, again, just kind of examine that. And so the found family is much more of a, I almost want to say typical kind of found family in which you have these disparate people who've come together with a common cause. In this case, they are, you know, working on this cargo ship and they all have their different reasons for being there. They all are maybe running from something, running to something. And, um, and definitely Ava was one of the people who was running from something. Uh, Vakar is also running from something. I feel like Pink is kind of a little of column A and a little of column B. She's running from, she's running to, um, and it's, it's a little more complicated for her. But in terms of the, then the blood family side of it, again, I had to find out what were kind of compelling reasons for that to have been disrupted such that they would no longer really even be on speaking terms for the most part. Um, because in, in, in a Cuban culture, it would, it would take quite a lot for that to happen. You know, it, it's, it's the old blood is thicker in water. Speaking of idioms, which that's not even the correct idiom. But, uh, it's, it's something that gets repeated. And so I was also thinking of that idiom actually when I was putting this together with the whole blood is thicker than water, but it's actually, you know, the, the, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And so the notion of that actual idiom is that the, found family that you create uh, is actually probably going to be stronger than the blood family that you originally had because your only connection with them is essentially, you know, just an accident of birth where the family that you find is one that you've chosen for yourself and you've chosen, uh, you've all chosen each other essentially. And that creates a much stronger bond than one uh, that is just, again, an accident of birth. Well, talk about an idiom that's lost its original meaning. Yeah. So. One aspect of that that found family, though, is that Ava's story in connection with both the found family and her biological family is that she has to redeem herself for past wrongs and mistakes um, regarding both sides in some senses. So how do you underline sort of the importance of that narrative in your work? Mm -hmm. So um, one thing that... Um again, I wanted to examine is that disruption. And so in both cases, you know, 
um, I'm sorry, in one case, rather, in the case of her family, the disruption has occurred in the past. And so there's not a strong explanation necessarily of what happened. And actually, um, one thing that's referenced throughout the book is the incident at Guerrilla, and that being the reason why she broke ties with her father and her former captain, Tito. And that's actually explained in book two. So, hey, look forward to that one. Um, but I wanted to explore a situation in which you had that past issue, that past disruption, but also it was being sort of echoed in the present disruption and uh, like recurring. You have this character who has done bad things in the past, but is trying to do better, is trying to reform. And so it's almost kind of like a shadow narrative in which the the person that she used to be is kind of cropping back up and threatening the person that she is now and threatening to take away this new life that she's built. Um, you know, and, and uh, a lot of it is about trust. It's about being honest with herself, with her family, both families, and um, sort of negotiating that when she's put in a situation where she has to lie for the sake of her blood family. Um, and so it is that kind of contrast between the two situations um, where she does have that, it, it's the tug, it's it's the, you know, struggle to determine whether or not she can continue this sort of facade that she has built up um, and whether or not she has to go back to being the person that she was when she's been trying so hard to get away from it. Yeah, there's really rich character dynamics internally and between the characters in this novel, and I really appreciated that. I know the book has only been out a week as of the, as of the writing, but I don't think that the marketing matter quite captures just how rich a character novel this is as opposed, as opposed to other virtues of the novel. And I just want to compliment you on just how well you develop these character arcs and how, how these characters grow and change and face their pasts and deal with their pasts, go forward with, uh, new revelations about who they are and what they, what they're, where they fit in the universe. Well, thank you. Thank you. Speaking of sort of the that character development and the 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 interplay of relationships um, that is going on in this, like obviously, as we've said repeatedly, uh, Mass Effect nerds and definitely influenced by Mass Effect and also other video games. Portal comes to mind, yep, yep. you know, for instance, uh, and many others. But what I'm curious about is how sort of video game narrative helped you or influenced you in the writing of this novel not just in the feel of the novel or sort of the set pieces and some of the you know more interesting things that happen over the course of the novel like items that are invented but just in how the characters interact with each other and how the plot moves along um so how did video games sort of help you create that what do you find useful in video game narratives? So one of the things that I think I relied on definitely in this book is the notion of um, different locations, different planets. So that kind of situation where you are jumping from one planet to the next and each planet tends to be kind of like a discrete mission in Mass Effect. And so that's 
sort of what I replicated in this. Um, I call it episodic because you can also compare it to TV structure in a way with the notion of each chapter being kind of like an episode. Sometimes it's a two-parter and it's two chapters per episode. Um, but it is still that kind of like you, you go to this place, you have a mission, you complete the mission. Maybe there's a side quest or two. Most of the time it's just banter, but uh, you do have this kind of discrete thing to do. And that was something definitely that came uh, from from Mass Effect as well as from TV, just that notion of having a kind of singular central thing that had to occur at one place. I definitely made jokes about, you know, uh, mineral scanning and stuff like that, because that's another thing you end up with in Mass Effect, right, is that you have not just kind of whatever the main mission is on a planet, but you have potentially little side quests that you end up doing. And so that was something that I was thinking about structurally when I was putting this together, the fact that you know, she's getting these assignments from the fridge and she has to go to these different places to do a pickup or a drop off or, you know, passengers <laughs> transportation. And so um, that kind of thing, you know, bringing it from from video games into this, that that notion of that kind of discrete unit of action um, that it occurs it has a beginning middle and end and then you're done and then there are repercussions that you deal with after the fact and so you know you you do a mission mass effect you get back to the normandy and you based on what, what the mission was whether it was a big one or small one you may have different interactions that you can have with the characters and so it's an action reaction kind of situation but um, that was something that i was thinking about as i was structuring this is just having those kind of discrete units so that it did almost feel like you're going through different levels in a video game let's uh jump topics slightly so um so so speaking about mass effect because because they're a big feature of the whole mass effect backstory and their feature in this story precursor aliens are pretty common in science fiction oh sure yeah so how did you make the book the pro arc truly your own in the book so I am going to have to not fully answer that question because it will be spoilers um <laughs> I am trying to think of how to answer it without it being spoilers. So I will say that I actually gave it quite a lot of thought and the pro arc are not actually like the Proteans from Mass Effect or the Reapers. I hope my husband doesn't listen to this because he has actually not gotten to the part of Mass Effect where there are Reapers. So shh, don't tell him about what? it. What? I know, I know. He what? listen. Uh -oh. we, we have children. Time is is short, and that's life. So anyway, the point is that um, as much as I would love to talk to him about Mass Effect, there's a reason that Jen and I spent like three hours doing it because I can't really talk to him about Mass. I know I can't talk to my husband about it. Oh, it's he terrible. Hasn't played it at all. It's the worst. Yeah, but um, but yeah. Suffice it to say that my conception of these ancient aliens in my book, aliens, um, picture me with like a, a crazy ha hair. Anyway, um, they are they are not borrowed from Mass Effect. They are actually borrowed from an entirely different property. Um, that I cannot discuss because it will be a spoiler. So I thought about it a lot and also thought about how uh, their history exists. When you have ancient aliens, the wild thing about it is thinking about the time scale involved, right? And so that was something that was fascinating about Mass Effect and is fascinating about a lot of other stories. So I'm reading another book for a friend that has a really cool uh, ancient alien culture situation. But in that case, uh, it's one where the history has been purposefully rewritten and obscured. 
which I think is a really cool way to do it. And that's something that Bioware did more with the Dragon Age series than with the Mass Effect series. With Mass Effect, it felt much more like the history was accidentally being changed, rewritten, rediscovered. It was more like the typical kind of archaeological mistakes and omissions and gaps that you have in the record. And I love that kind of stuff. I love this notion that we're trying to recreate history from fragments and we're going to get it wrong because we're always viewing it through the lens of, of works today. And it kind of works backwards um, or reversed rather for future sci-fi. When we're writing future sci-fi, we're, we're trying to project forward into a future that doesn't exist, but we're also viewing it through the lens of where we are today. And it's almost impossible, I think, to divorce the two things, to separate them. And so having an ancient alien race is really cool because you're not just projecting forward into space opera, you know, future of this ancient alien race, but you're also thinking backwards. And the timescale can be wild. It can be a thousand years. It could be 10,000 years. It could be millions of years. And just trying to think how would creatures change over that period of time? You know, how, how would they evolve? How would their culture evolve? How would their priorities change? And, if you have a creature like from Mass Effect that has literally existed for that entire time period, what kind of cultural memory do they have? What kind of personal memory do they have? It's There's just a lot of really cool stuff to explore. And that was a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about as I was, you know, putting these ancient aliens together. I, it, it, it is all very cool. And I, I'm guessing I'm going to really enjoy book two because I really, because I really dig precursor aliens ever since I picked up Larry Niven short stories back in the day and it's like oh al- ancient aliens wow i mean not the, not this not the stupid uh history council but like ancient <laughs> aliens in in uh that, that have stuff left around and you can interact with and sometimes in a very very bad way and you oh yeah really, you bring that tradition t- into this book and i really really appreciate that or 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 Borderlands for that matter. Oh yeah, Borderlands in the vaults. Yes, it's it's always awesome because like you always have people and and I mean I did it in this book again. Sorry for if that's a spoiler, I'll try to keep it light. But just this notion of people kind of rolling into these ancient you know <laughs> places and and you know oh what does this big red button do? And you're like why would you do that? <laughs> why? <sighs> because humans are curious. I humans humans are again speaking of idioms curiosity killed the cat but satisfaction brought it back so yes but in addition to humans you have a bunch of contemporary alien species throughout this book not not only the emperor and I do want you to talk a bit about the emperor <laughs> and how you did find but you have a whole slew of other races that show up it kind of reminded me like the like just walking around the citadel in Mass Effect and seeing 15 different kinds of aliens wandering around that your book is jam-packed with all sorts of good alien species goodness so i'm kind of i mean it kind of remind me also a little bit of one of my favorite authors julie says nerda who really does throws alien after alien into her books and i really appreciate that sort of universe so i wanted you to talk about developing those alien species and having them interact and making them all individual rather than just being being rubber foreheaded aliens yeah, and so the challenge there too is that a lot of times in in books and I'm not going to call anyone out here and I'm not going to say that, you know, it's like universal or what have you, but a lot of times what happens is that you will end up with a lot of alien species and then just white people. Um and just white dudes maybe. And so part of the challenge for me was to make sure that there was diversity among the humans as well as among the aliens and um one of those, you know, 
elements, for example, uh, there's there's different human races, obviously, that are still persistent in this um, far farish future. Um, and I didn't want to have too much erasure of that. Obviously, there's going to be evolutions, there's going to be cultural shifts as humans, you know, settle other planets. And I, I wanted to try to make it not a colonialist kind of narrative. And so it's not, it's not a story of humans going out into the stars and taking over other worlds from creatures that were already there. It's one of settlement. It's one of trying to find ecological niches for themselves in other places and hopefully have a, a more harmonious situation. But that said, there's also other crap that happens because humans are humans and we do, we do bad things. But, um, I also wanted to make sure that, um, the aliens were different from each other. And yet at the same time, I feel like for the most part, if you're going to have aliens that are interacting with humans, and interacting with each other, there have to be touchstones, there have to be points of, you know, comparison, there have to be, there, there has to be overlap, basically, between them, because otherwise, why are they going to interact with each other? If they don't have anything in common, then they're not going to meet, they're not going to trade, they're not going to talk, there's, there's going to be no point in them engaging with each other, because there's, there's no point of commonality. And so the aliens that I've created, even though there are a lot of different species, they're different from each other, but there are enough points of overlap between them in terms of not just uh, physicality, but also culture, so that they can kind of interact with each other in ways that make sense as opposed to them being so entirely and completely different from each other that there's no reason for them to interact, you know? So um, there, there is still, there are differences among the aliens, but I did want to make sure that there were enough commonalities for it to make sense that they would even be talking to each other at all. Sure, there has to be some baseline basis. Otherwise, I mean, if you just have humans and you have hydrogen breathers and a gas giant they're just never really going to talk to each other at all they actually have to have some yeah some commonalities along which which also makes me think of cj cherry's uh meat point station and those aliens your novel draws in a nice fine tradition is what i'm saying and extends that into the 20th century and i appreciate that yeah, yeah. And I mean, the contrast to that would be something like they're made out of meat, um, in which you have these, these aliens that are so completely and totally different from humans that there really is nothing. They, they have no interest in dealing with us. They have no interest in interacting with us. And so those kinds of aliens, yeah, they, they would be wherever they are doing whatever they're doing. And maybe we know about them and maybe we don't because maybe they have never made contacts. They have no reason to. They have no interest in doing so. And so those are the aliens that, well, are not appearing in this novel because why would they? <laughs> I mean that's a fine story, but it's a, it's a one sting it's a it's a one stinger story, and you really can't go anywhere after saying that. It's really a, it's really just a one note. It's a great story, but it's just like and readers, you can probably find they're made to meet online. It's probably free online somewhere. It's short, but yeah, you just can't build a universe or a novel out of it. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's a wonderful story. I've actually taught it in short fiction writing classes because it is, um, like, like the, the, the end of it is so compelling. It is, it's, it's hilarious, obviously. It's, it's a flash fiction. It's quick. It's, it's fun. It's funny. And yet the ending is no longer funny. The ending is sort of, sort of sad, melancholy. Um, because once you start thinking about it, it is that notion of like, we are potentially so wildly different from every other creature that is, you know, sapient in this universe that maybe we will never end up talking to them because they don't want to talk to us and we can't know. And that's just life. Uh, so it is, it is kind of a, you know, a sad story ultimately, but it, it's something that when I was creating the aliens in this book, I was thinking about it. So one of my favorite aliens, uh, I mean, other than Vicar, obviously, 
would totally ship that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so, because it's canon. Sorry. <laughs> your your OTP is canon. That's it. Sorry. It's... <laughs> right. Exactly. But the other ones that I loved are... Um, Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the chapter that was uh, loosely based on Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going back to the ancient alien idea. When I was, again, initially conceiving of the aliens, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, things like dinosaurs or what have you, you know, just different um, biker mice from Mars, that kind of like cartoon, you know, uh, animal situation. And so think thinking about dinosaurs and, oh, you know, what happened to the dinosaurs? Well, maybe the asteroid didn't destroy them. Maybe they left on spaceships. You know, it, it was kind of a goofy joke initially when I started it. But then the more I was thinking about it, the more I was like, no, nah, I think this has legs. I think I could go somewhere with this. And um, I, I also had obviously the other ancient aliens, the Proarch. And so this notion that you might have these overlapping ancient alien races was really interesting to me and again it's something that um is sort of spoilery i don't remember if i mentioned it in this book or if it's coming in another one but um yeah just ideas of um you know if you have one ancient alien why not have two why not have more um because would only one race survive well i mean we still have sharks i guess but um just just the dinosaurs, I, I felt like it would be super fun if in some form or fashion they had survived. Um, maybe Earth was not even their home planet. Maybe Earth was someplace that they had themselves settled and then, oh, yeah, there was a catastrophe and whoops, you lost this one colony. But actually, there were plenty of other ones everywhere. And so the Pride and Prejudice thing came out of not just my love of Pride and Prejudice, but um, my love of like Spanish telenovelas. I used to watch them with my abuela when I was little and they would just have some of the wildest plots and twists and turns and characters doing bizarre things and it was always kind of hilarious to watch um and some of them were more serious than others some of them were more kind of high drama than others but i wanted to incorporate that with the dinosaurs because it felt like a really good tonal sort of shift you know you've got this very massive scary monster and then they're acting like these kind of regency <laughs> humans um combined <laughs> with maybe you know a, a kind of again spanish soap opera <laughs> situation so um i kind of just thought it was hilarious and i went with it and also, it ended up being a very kind of profound character moment for Ava. I'm, again, I'm not, not spoiling what happens, but it occurs <laughs> at a very particular time in her development and causes her to reconsider a lot of her choices and feelings. Absolutely. It was a fantastic, fantastic chapter. That yes. was so much fun. I might have done a lot of squeeing over the course of this novel. It started <laughs> with psychic cats, and then it went to Regency dinosaurs. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> it, it was just like what am i reading in a good way valerie's like what am i reading like, yeah. A, yeah. A, 
a love triangle for dinosaurs? What the heck? <laughs> and I mean, when I was writing it, like that was kind of where I was going from. I feel like a lot of times when you're writing a book, you have kind of an operative question that you have to ask yourself. And it's something that helps you not just when you're writing, but also when you're editing. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen here? What's the most, you know, painful thing that could happen here for the character? What's the scariest thing that can happen here? What's the most embarrassing thing that can happen here? And my question was usually, what's the weirdest thing that can happen here? Or what's the most <laughs> hilarious thing that could happen here? And so as I was writing, as I was editing, that's kind of what I was continuously asking myself. I would get to a point where, you know, maybe I would have the characters make a particular choice or do a particular thing. And then I would back up and say, mm, could we make that funnier, though? Could we make that a little more ridiculous? And then I would just kind of keep pushing it until it, it felt like I'd gone as, about as, as weird as I could. Well, it was as weird as a book that I've read in a while uh, and utterly delightful. But um, before we close this out, why don't you tell us where people can find you and Chilling Effect? So the easiest place to find me is probably on Twitter, uh, which is at Valerie Valdez. It's my name. Valdez is with an S. So you can find me often on on the Twitter, the Twitters tweeting, tweeting away. Um, and you can also find me at either ValerieValdez.com or CandleInSunshine.com. Same website, different addresses, one redirects to the other. So you can't get too lost. Um, you can also find my book on Amazon, on Goodreads, on Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, uh, Books A Million, all the major retailers. And you can also uh, link to it from my website and from the Harper Voyager website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today with us, Valerie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and delight. And listeners, if you'd like to drop us a line about, about this interview or any other, you can do so through email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com or at our own Twitter account at skiffyandfanty. Don't forget, we have book reviews at skiffyandfanty.com. I write some of those. And booktube videos at youtube.com. That's skiffyandfanty. If you want, don't want to miss anything we do in all the places we do, sign up for our newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And finally, if you like what we do, Please support us at patreon.com slash shiftgamefanty. And thank you again, listeners, for listening to this interview with Valerie Valdez. Make sure you go check out Chilling Effect at, you know, places near you right now, ASAP. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. Stay frosty. Awkward ending and scene. If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.